0: Hello, this is Change Agents, a series about change and the people who make it happen. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today, how Australia stopped Japanese whaling.
1: And I received a phone call from the then Minister for the Environment, who was Malcolm Turnbull, who wanted to quiz me about the legal advice. Mr Turnbull, I have to say, was quite skeptical.
2: That case stopped Japan killing Antarctic whales for the first time in 70 years. Yes, it was just a one-year pause, but that changed the momentum within the International Whaling Commission.
0: The Sea Shepherd Organisation has this week announced it will cease its anti-whaling operation in the Southern Ocean in response to Japan's increasingly sophisticated and military-like harvesting of whales. Stopping Japanese whaling has been the desire of the international community since the mid-1980s, when Japan started what it called scientific whaling under Article 8 of the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. The so-called research program was originally known by the acronym JAPA-1. But in 2014, Japan's pretext for whaling was finally discredited, when Australia won a case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And for a year, Japanese whaling stopped. Today, the backstory on how that happened, through the eyes of two of the key players, ANU legal academic Professor Don Rothwell and Darren Kindleysides, who was then campaign manager at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. They worked on a strategy to provide both the legal argument and the political will for Australia to take on Japan in the courts. Because, as Darren Kindley sides points out, the international community's diplomatic criticism of Japan's whaling was having no effect.
2: Really, if you look around at what was happening with, with the governments uh, trying to challenge that, nothing was proving effective in stopping them. Basically, Japan was abusing the whaling convention sticking two fingers up at the international community, if you if, if you like, and really setting itself a commercial whaling quota, but, but calling it science.
0: In fact, Don, at the International Whaling Commission, there were routinely votes by members condemning Japan for what it was doing, and Japan was systematically ignoring them.
1: Yes, there was a fairly consistent pattern at the IWC meetings in which conservation-minded states, uh, of which Australia became a very prominent uh, member, would routinely propose these resolutions condemning uh, Japan's conduct of JAPA. There would be a, a vitriolic debate, and, uh, and those resolutions were often passed with very firm majorities. But the, the problem was is that the, the resolutions had no legally binding effect, they were really just um, political declarations. and. Um, Japan would just consistently ignore them.
0: What, what I find amazing in this discussion is that it appears that up until Australia brought this matter to the International Court of Justice, there'd been no court uh, making an interpretation on what's what actually constituted scientific whaling. Is that true?
1: Yes, that's true. and And that's just quite simply a fact of international litigation that often states will have many disagreements and debates about how treaties uh, such as the whaling convention are interpreted but unless a matter actually goes before an international court and tribunal uh, you won't actually get a a, a final determinative uh, ruling so that's always going to be a factor in terms of any uh, international litigation but but the other factor of course at play in a matter such as this is actually finding a state which is prepared to challenge uh, the the conduct of another state um, before an international court, and that's the remarkable thing about what Australia did here.
0: Well, Darren, at this stage, you're working for the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and are you going along to meetings of the International Whaling Commission and seeing this drama play out, where all of the states are are really annoyed with Japan but unable to do anything?
2: Yeah, that that was that was definitely the case. That. Um... I mean, the first time anyone goes to International Whaling Commission, it's a bit like being uh, uh, being exposed to a to a new cult. It has a quite a unique way of operating. I, if you've got experience of working in uh, any sort of multilateral treaty or, or, or convention, the IWC certainly operates in a, in a very strange way, where um, there was paralysis and, and, and deadlock, deeply divided. But but actually, in terms of constraining Japan abusing the very whaling convention by by killing a large number of whales in the name of science, there was very little that was able to be done. Um, of course, you know, year in, year out, there were diplomatic concerns raised, but year in, year out, Japan went back to Antarctica and killed hundreds of whales. And of course, they were stepping up that, that hunt as well. So it became apparent to me that the deadlock within the International Whaling Commission uh, wasn't really suiting anyone. It certainly wasn't suiting the whales. Japan was killing hundreds of whales in the name of science and no government was really finding an avenue to stop them.
0: Don, am I right in saying that one of the fundamental problems is that the International Whaling Commission was a body that had been established to regulate whaling and had suddenly found itself in this position where it was principally about stopping people whaling so that the architecture, the mechanisms weren't really in place for this to happen properly?
1: Yeah, that's that's really a critical point. Um, The convention was concluded in 1946. It was really a a convention set up to to regulate uh, the industry. It was one of the early examples of an international environmental convention. Uh, And so to that end, uh, whilst it was a convention set up to regulate whaling, uh, when the moratorium was concluded in the mid 1980s, it was suddenly being thrust into now seeking to achieve environmental objectives and outcomes so the, the the structures and the mechanisms that were embedded within the convention framework and the polit- political framework within the International Whaling Commission were really not adequate in terms of uh, enforcement and monitoring uh, of, of the actions of countries like Japan.
0: Well by the mid-2000s the world is already pretty annoyed with Japan and then they go and introduce JAPA2. Darren what was JAPA2?
2: Yeah, this was. Uh, um, they, they say that in, in the in the uh, in movies, the sequel is rarely as good as the uh, as the original. And uh, Jabra Two certainly proved to be to be much worse for the whales than JAPA One. What Japan did was, uh, was was basically double the number of whales they were planning to kill in Antarctica every every season. So they went from killing about 400 minke whales a year to to planning to kill upwards of 900. But in addition, uh, they looked at also killing say whales and humpback whales, which are both, uh, both threatened species. So the number of whales that are planning to hunt increased, but also the range of species. And um, critically, by looking to catch humpback whales, they made this very personal for Australia. The humpback whale was pushed to the, the brink of extinction, both on our east and west coasts, but had populations had, had bounced back after whaling was, was ceased. Uh, and we're supporting a, a multi-million dollar whale watching industry. It's the animal we see uh, every winter migrating up our coasts, uh, you know, within eyeshot shot of places like Bondi and, and and Moreton Bay here in here in Brisbane. And suddenly, uh, humpbacks have been added to uh, Japan's kill cool list. It made it, as I say, very personal.
0: This was a step too far, though, in a sense, wasn't it? Because this action by Japan galvanised lots of people into getting serious about taking them on.
2: It did. Um, it really posed the question, well, if Japan is going to double the quota, it's setting itself uh, for Wales, you know, there must be there must be a response. I think the difficulty was uh, people didn't really know how to respond. The challenges through diplomatic channels and so on of the, the previous two decades, almost since Japan's start of this huge scientific whaling program hadn't really been successful. And suddenly people were looking around for a solution, for, for an alternative uh, to, to the deadlock. I think Japan was taking a, a gamble, really, but no one would find an avenue or, or have the guts to step up. But I think they hugely miscalculated.
0: So, Don, at this stage, or well not long afterwards, you were brought in to lend your weight through the legal advice that you were able to give the International Fund for Animal Welfare, through a series of panels, and you worked on at least a couple of these. What were you being asked to do?
1: Well, effectively, Darren and his colleagues were were coming to me, and then ultimately, um, me and my colleagues, uh, seeking to explore uh, whether there were uh, legal avenues to challenge Japan's conduct of, of its whaling program. So... That that was the initial grief and uh, when I started to look at this issue and then when I uh, was able to work collaboratively with with other groups of international lawyers uh, globally and, and in Australia, we fairly quickly identified that we thought that there was a, an arguable legal case that Japan's conduct was not consistent with the provisions of the whaling convention and then most importantly we thought that there were avenues in which that legal argument could be presented before an international court and tribunal. So we were fairly confident, even within the initial phase of looking at this issue, that there was some prospect of success if if this matter was to be taken forward.
0: Darren, what was the thinking behind the convening of these panels? What were you trying to achieve by doing it and, and, and by going down this
2: path? Well, I was thinking back to that first meeting I had with uh, with, with Don uh, and with colleagues at, at I-4. Yeah, we were searching for an avenue to try and stop Japan killing whales in, in the Southern Ocean and calling it scientific research. And there'd been a little bit of thinking around possible legal challenges, but none really developed, uh, developed that. And so myself and a colleague, Denise, just went to meet with Don in his office in uh, in Sydney University, as it was at that stage. And uh, just to talk around whether there were genuine legal avenues for stopping Japan. And maybe it's the for, for sort of benefit of, of, of hindsight. But I can remember, remember that meeting very clearly. And for me, it felt like a penny dropped. You know, talking to Don, this was before seeing his legal advice, but just speaking with Don then, for me, it turned the possible idea of a legal challenge from being just you know a good idea that, that people had knocked around but never felt it would go anywhere or any government would have the guts to take it or you know uh, it went from being an idea in my mind to being a genuine opportunity to challenge japan's scientific whaling an opportunity that, that had the potential to succeed and look as i say i might be romanticizing that it's you know the meeting took place 12 years ago now but um for me having struggled through several international whaling commissions, seeing the deadlock, uh, seeing Japan setting its own agenda for, for, for killing whales and not, not being challenged, suddenly there was a glimmer of hope.
0: Did you in that meeting or soon afterwards plot out a way in which you would garner global opinion on a legal strategy? So did you start thinking through how you would convene panels in London and Paris and back here in Australia at that point?
2: I guess, it's, I guess it's a yes and a no. Any good strategy has an element of uh, organic nature to it. We knew what we needed to do was to build the case from 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 two perspectives. One was to build the, the the legal case to show there were very clear legal solutions to what Japan was doing. Secondly, we needed to build the scientific case. So essentially, to to dismantle. Japan's arguments for so-called research whaling in, in the Southern Ocean had anything to do with research or science at all. And then you know, having sort of proved that concept, if you like, we then knew we needed to mount a, a public campaign to raise awareness of the issues, i.e. You know, Japan's expanded whaling, but also raise awareness of the fact there was a solution after you know, 20 years of deadlock, after moratorium having, having come in. So the strategy was slightly organic, but we knew the starting point was proving the concept, showing there was a legal avenue that could be prosecuted by a government.
0: D- didn't it feel just incredibly frustrating that you had to go to such enormous lengths to prove something that was so bleedingly obvious, that this wasn't scientific and that it had to stop because it was illegal?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's a, if I was to characterise all of the... but but the legal advice that Don and and the the, the panelist Don was involved in came up with, essentially was an exercise in proving the bleeding obvious. It was always clear to me and clear clear to most observers that scientific whaling had nothing to do with science. It It was all to do with the continuation of commercial whaling. That was bleedingly obvious, but we had to bridge the gap between the obvious And the, I suppose, lack of political will to really do what was needed to to stop Japan whaling. And of course, the arguments had to be mounted around exactly what legal challenges and avenues were were available. And that was what was missing. And that was the the excellent work that, that Don and the panels were able to do. It really did prove that not only is there a legal case, but here are the specific avenues.
0: So Don, how did you prove the bleeding obvious?
2: Well, um, two two ways. Um,
1: first of all, um, th- there needed to be a very thorough assessment of the provisions of the Whaling Convention and Article 8 in particular, especially given that we were working in an area where there was no legal precedent. So we were applying basic principles to the interpretation of Article 8 of the Whaling Convention, and especially focusing in on whether on the basis of the evidence um, it it was arguable that Japan was not actually conducting uh, legitimate uh, research for scientific purposes, but that it was in fact connecting uh, commercial whaling uh, under another guise. And um, we fairly quickly um, at the Paris panel, um, I remember in in 2006, um, which had a very, very, very strong lineup of very eminent lawyers who'd, who'd been practiced in arguing cases before the International Court of Justice that group very quickly came to the view that yes there was a very strong case on that ground notwithstanding the fact that there was no legal precedent on these points and then the second argument was to find a a basis for jurisdiction before an international court and tribunal and we looked at a number of options and and the international court of justice looked very strong from that perspective we couldn't necessarily see any major jurisdictional hurdles so Once we'd been able to establish those two key elements, the strength of the legal advice just continued to build, and I think that that gave a lot of confidence to Darren and others um, who were seeking to advocate it before politicians.
0: What do you do, Darren, with this advice that you're getting that's very favourable to your case? Do you start shopping it around in Canberra?
2: Yeah, but that's um, that's probably a, a good way of characterising what we needed to to do. We had the strong legal arguments from from the panels, and we have the strong scientific arguments as well. But uh, I suppose before we before we could start making that case in 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 Canberra, we had to build a, a strong contingency of uh, public support for for legal action. And so we ran, I suppose what was it, a twin track campaign, the, the outside track, if you like, the public campaign was, Basically, getting out there, releasing um, summaries of the, the the legal opinions, running a whole range of uh, of activities from demonstrations to guerrilla advertising to taking 20 metre inflatable whales out onto out onto Sydney Harbour to, to just build in the public consciousness awareness of the fact that yes, governments can do something about Japan's expanded scientific whaling, and attached to that and on the back of that and once you have that public support then it becomes easier to get the ear of 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 politicians in in Canberra so you know we spent several years uh, we spent two years really on on working through the legal advice and and building this public support before we came to 2007 uh, which was of course um, an election year and as we know there's nothing focuses our politicians minds more in terms of coming up with with exciting new policy directions when, a, when, when an election so that was clearly a very significant year uh, made even more significant by the fact that 2007 uh, the end of 2007 that was the first year that japan planned to start killing humpback whales under its java 2 program
0: did you get in to see how government ministers and what sort of response did you
2: get yeah we would we, we really spoke to uh to whoever would listen um in you know, both sides of politics, in fact, all all, all sides of politics, and um, I, I felt uh, the, the the strength was when, when when you sit down with a uh, with, with a politician, and it's just oh, it's it's someone from an environmental group, you know, but, you know that's that's okay, but they they know what we're going to say. But where you have um, an internationally renowned lawyer backed up by a raft of uh, of power reports from other internationally acclaimed lawyers um that's something that's not very easy to ignore Uh, and i think what i found was the majority of of the politicians we spoke with um really accepted the case i think the the basis for challenging japan was clear and actually the strength of the, the different legal uh, options was, was was clear as well. The major hurdle, of course, was then, um, as, as I mentioned, uh, generating the political will to, to, to take action.
1: I remember one particular incident um, that I was involved in. I was sitting in my office early in, in 2007 and, and I received a phone call from the then Minister for the Environment, who was Malcolm Turnbull, who, who wanted to quiz me about the legal advice and um, Mr. Turnbull, I have to say, was quite sceptical. I uh, I said that I thought that there was a, 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 an arguable case. Um, but Mr. Turnbull, of course, um, given his background as a litigator in some very famous cases in Australia, uh, wasn't quite so convinced. And I, I think that one of the difficulties that we were experiencing uh, in that sort of uh, exchange was that the government quite properly had probably gone to their own government lawyers and they may well have been getting some different advice on these matters and so i think one of the critical things that began to emerge in 2007 was the 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 very different views that were being taken by uh, the labor opposition where where peter garrett became uh, quite an advocate for these matters and and was quite on board in terms of understanding aspects of the legal advice whereas the howard government with, with malcolm turnbull as minister for the environment was much more conservative in its views and 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 of course the prospect of taking japan to an international court raised of course trade and economic issues and and that i think was a concern of the government of the day
0: in other words the the howard government wasn't going to take it to the international court of justice but uh, kevin rudd announced that an incoming labor government would
1: yeah and i I think that that was really a pivotal moment in terms of the, the the campaign so that as the uh, election campaign in 2007 reached its end, uh, I, I particularly remember uh, a press conference debate between Peter Garrett and Malcolm Turnbull, where where this became a, a pivotal issue between the the two uh, parties in terms of their environmental policies, and so. The election then of the Rudd government sparked great enthusiasm, but also expectations that literally, you know, Australia would, would be racing off to the international court against Japan within days of the election of the government.
0: And of course, that didn't happen. It took almost three years after the election of the government, well, certainly two and a half years before the matter came to the ICJ. My question for you both is to what extent do you think all of that groundwork that you'd done? Uh, on behalf of I-4 and through all of these international panels, to what extent did that work inform Australia's decision and the, the kinds of arguments it mounted at the ICJ?
1: Well, Look, I, I guess in my view, it was absolutely pivotal um, and that without that work having been done um, to... Uh, convince and and energize the the alternate government of the day. And then when the alternate government came into office, armed with all of this legal advice, um, it it then had a very strong expectation that the Australian government lawyers would actually move forward on this policy. And uh, yes, it took a few years before the case was actually commenced, but Um, During that time, the Australian government lawyers laid all of the appropriate groundwork, uh, including working with others uh, in the scientific community to gather the advice. Uh, I guess one of the things that ultimately I um, learned from this was that it's all very well and good to present legal advice from outside of the government. but, uh, But not only do the politicians need to own that advice, but ultimately the Australian government lawyers who who really have to argue those those matters before international courts? They also need to own that advice too.
0: So, am I right in saying that part of what you were doing was trying to instil a, a new consciousness in the Australian government's own lawyers, so that convincing them was part of the battle?
1: Yes, very much so. And um, and I think part of my frustration that I often expressed to Darren was was the difficulty in actually getting one-on-one meetings with the Australian government lawyers. Now, I appreciate that there are limits in terms of how they could be speaking to those of us from outside of government, but there was something of a resistance that persons from outside of the government should be actually influencing the government in terms of taking them one of the most significant steps any government could do, and that is take another country to the International Court of Justice. So that proved to be a, a matter of strong frustration, and uh, but ultimately I think um, it was, I suspect, the advocacy of people like Peter Garrett within government uh, who, who ultimately proved to be a turning point there.
0: And Darren, I guess the other thing is that no government wants to be seen to be being pushed by an NGO into anything, particularly something as serious as this.
2: There was that, that sense once the, uh, the Labor government came in on the back of this promise that suddenly uh, there was a, a distance between the environmental ngos but 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 also perhaps of the international legal community here as well and i mean it's it's understandable given the, the significance of the of, of the case but i i never got the sense that the momentum we had built and actually working to sustain in, in the public arena dropped dropped away i think the groundwork which was the, the legal arguments um, but also, the public awareness of and, and support for, for legal action is really what drove this forward through the, um, the, 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 those first years of, of the Labor government. And, and actually, the, um, the first whaling season under that Labor government, they sent a customs vessel down to monitor the, uh, the, the whaling fleet and to uh, essentially to collect evidence to support a, a legal challenge, and, and some of the, the images that came out from that surveillance proved very significant. There was an iconic image of a uh, uh, a large female whale and, and, and a calf being pulled up behind the whaling vessel, which I think for me, the fact the Australian government had released that showed uh, that they were committed to taking this, this action. Having said that, some of the hurdles we faced with the pr- previous coalition government, the Inertia within foreign affairs, because they were seeing the relationship with Japan as being something that needs to to be protected at all costs, and then some of the questions within the uh, the Attorney General's department, I guess, which is, well, is this case winnable? We we still had those those two hurdles to overcome. And look, we could we could never guarantee this this case would be won. I felt relatively confident, but from my own colleagues to Opponents to the case, to, to politicians, we were always asked that question. Well, are you, are you certain you can win this? I asked Don this question several times, and he, uh, you know, he he never said yes. Uh, he sometimes he gave me a, a percentage chance of, of success, which was which was greater than fifty, and that was that was enough for me because the consequences of not doing anything were we was sort of hard really, to fathom Well, if, if japan would just kill continue killing whales one way or the other right so you know we we had those hurdles to to overcome before and after um the the, the change of government but there was still momentum there and that was built on the foundations of illegal work and the public campaigning we'd uh we had been able to undertake
0: Well, of course, the matter did go before the courts, and the court did make a ruling in favour of the Australian position, which was then supported by New Zealand. However, Japan is now whaling again. So, Don, what is it about that judgment that allows Japan now to continue whaling?
1: Well, two two things. And the first is that it needs to be understood that the decision of the International Court in, in 2014 did not strike down... Uh, Article 8 of the Whaling Convention. So Article 8 of the Whaling Convention still remains in place. And secondly, in the very final substantive paragraph of the ICJ's judgment, it reminds Japan that if it does intend to take uh, Whaling on the basis of Article 8 of the Convention, it needs to be very mindful of the the criteria that the court had outlined as being a, a, a basis on which Research framed around uh, whales uh, consistent with Article 8 uh, could be undertaken in the future. So, Japan's current whaling program, uh, New Rep A, is a completely redesigned program with a very strong focus around some of the key criteria uh, that the National Court talked about in the whaling case. Now, having said that, I-, I should make it clear that there are still a number of us who are not convinced that that. Current program is consistent with the decision of the International Court, but nevertheless, Japan has reframed its program in a way that's quite different from uh, aspects of the previous Japa
0: Two program. Darren, the the bottom line is how many whales is it killing?
2: Yeah, so that uh, the the new program will kill upwards of four thousand whales, Antarctic whales, over the next uh, over the next twelve years. Some of the same questions and, and, and challenges we faced. Uh, back in 2005, when we were looking at the the start of a JAPA II program, uh, uh, are still there. And in fact, we convened a second Sydney panel, so that was uh, I for, but also in my my current role with the Australian Marine Conservation Society, to look again at the the potential legal avenues, uh, and they they still do exist. What I would say is, while Japan is is back whaling in the Southern Ocean, and that is it's devastating, it's devastating for, for the whales and for those that, that, that care about whale conservation. I think it's important to know more broadly what the International Court of Justice decision achieved. It was a, an incredible case. We were lucky to be the ones that made the case. It was Japan, it was the Australian government, but of course took that case so, so successfully. But that case stopped Japan killing Antarctic whales for the first time in 70 years. Yes, it was just a one-year But that changed the momentum within the International Whaling Commission. And so from a a position where that commission had been deadlocked, suddenly things have started to tick back over towards the the whale conservation-minded countries. And yes, all of those challenges still exist. Japan is stepping up its scientific whaling in the North Pacific as well as, as, as the Antarctic. But now, because of this ruling in the ICJ, Big whale conservation-minded governments are more on the front foot. Uh, of course, they do need to take that fight to Japan again, and we're we're advocating that the time is is now for a, a renewed legal challenge.
0: What have you both learned about the nature of change and about bringing about something as complex as this over such a long long time frame, Don?
1: Well, obviously, as a legal academic, this was completely new territory for me. And I think what I learned was that I was able to achieve these outcomes through working with, uh, with groups outside of the academy. And so I was very fortunate and privileged to be able to work with Darren and, and his colleagues and incredibly impressed by how professionally organized and coordinated they were in so many aspects of their campaign. But I guess uh, ultimately it, it, it's it's something that needs to be conducted on multiple fronts. And I think another aspect that we haven't touched on in this conversation is the role of the media. Um, there were uh, sect- sectors in the media who were very favorably disposed to the arguments that we were seeking to promote. Um, and journalists who who worked very closely with us. Uh, and that also played a significant role in terms of building the public campaign. Uh, but also keeping the pressure on the on the parliamentarians because the media ultimately have that sort of access that... Uh, NGOs and academics don't have,
0: Darren.
2: Well, I mean, it's that's actually a, a, a huge question. What is the nature of the change, and, and what do we what do we learn? I think I learned that you can achieve an, a remarkable amount uh, with <laughs> remarkably few people and and resources. Yes, this was a a multi-front campaign run internationally. But at the core of it, there were just a handful of us that worked over that, that number of years, plugging away relentlessly at the argument that a government needed to stand up to, to Japan in the international courts. Uh, and I think we were able to, to build a, a, a martial public opinion really well on a, on, a, on a shoestring. But at the core of that, I think, was just being resilient and, and, and persist, persistent when we got knocked back and uh, we had a former Prime Minister of New Zealand telling us we were just uh, in cloud cuckoo land trying to uh, persuade a government to take uh, Japan to court. We, we just we just worked around our opponents. Uh, we, we just, you know, we, we found different avenues. We were flexible. We were creative to be able to sustain public interest for the, the sort of five years between the campaign starting and the, the Australian government committing to take legal action. Five, five years, we had to keep the issue... Live and a lot of that was just around being creative in in that in in a public space. But I suppose the core of it, it was just a an unswerving belief that the the arguments we were making were very strong. All that was needed was a bit of political guts to uh, to, to take them on.
0: Well, to both of you, Darren Kindleysides and Don Rothwell, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Darren Kindleysides, the former campaign manager for the International Fund for Animal Welfare and now the Director of the Australian Marine Conservation Society, and Don Rothwell, Professor of Law at the Australian National University. Change Agents is a collaboration between The Conversation and the Swinburne Leadership Institute and Swinburne University's Department of Media and Communication. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud. The producer is Sam Wilson and production by Heather Jarvis. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Change Agents.